Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and this week we're talking about the master of martial arts, King Who. That's right, International Month begins with the director who elevated the martial arts film to an art form. And of course we're talking about this Hong Kong, wait, no, Taiwanese, no, 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 that's not true, Chinese filmmaker. By the way, I thought you were going to leap in and say that you hated the framing of uh, <laughs> director who elevated the martial arts film to an art form. I think... That condescending framing. That, you know, you know framing is 100% true. And we'll mm -hmm. talk about it, especially in his earlier films, that he set down a template that people would then build upon, and it basically defines what we know as martial arts cinema today i mean every really ambitious wuxia film and wuxia means flying swordsman and i believe the direct translation of wuxia is martial heroes we associate that with you know swordsmen flying around yep it all comes from like written text. There's a lot of famous wuxia authors that kind of defined it, like S Gulong. Centuries of Chinese mm -hmm. literature. Every really ambitious Chinese wuxia film is directly indebted to King Hu's films, from Wong Kar Wai's Ashes of Time to Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin to Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which has a forest action scene that will be very familiar to anyone who has seen A Touch of Zen, to many less well-known films. It all basically starts with 1966's Come Drink With Me. A case could be made for King Hu as the single most consequential Chinese film director. And a lot of that is that he created this style that was both deeply informed by tradition and the whole history of Chinese art and literature, but also very boldly modern and innovative and mid-1960s. And I want to stop people who are suddenly writing emails being like, whoa, whoa the Wuxia tradition has existed in cinema way before that. Like there was the Cantonese fantasy films and things like that. The Wong like, Fei-Hung films. We, we, we understand. Know. But like, I think that Wuxia, as we know it, King Hu kind of cemented in place. And I went looking too, like, all right, what was coming out around here? Because Come Drink With Me was actually part of a new Wuxia initiative by the Shaw brothers is that they wanted to kind of revolutionize the way that Wuxia has been portrayed on screen. That's right. In 1965, which was when this initiative was announced, I mean, you know, stories of swordsmen and fighters were common. There were, you know, popular low-budget movies being made in Hong Kong in the 50s, like the Wong Fei-Hung series. But the dominant kind of prestige genres of the 60s were musicals, comedies, romances, melodramas. Come Drink With Me was part of this strategy, I think they called it the Year of Action, that would consciously update that genre with state-of-the-art production values, big-budget action scenes, and that took inspiration from the sorts of samurai movies that were popular in Japan. And the first two movies were Chang Che's Tiger Boy, but much more important than that was Come Drink With Me in 1966. But before we get to Come Drink With Me, maybe we should give a little bit of background of where King Hu came from, because I think that his biography is really fascinating in the way that it kind of weaves through so many different places and that him ending up as a director was not something that was kind of in his plan, but something that he kind of landed on. Well, he was born in Beijing in 1932, I believe to a fairly well-to-do family. Apparently, his grandfather was a governor during the Qing dynasty. In 1949, he had moved to Hong Kong to attend university. There was some thought of going to the United States to continue his studies, but I don't think he was able to raise the funds for it. But he never returned to the mainland because he was one of many people who was in Hong Kong, you 
you know, when the communist revolution happened. Yep. And he ended up there separated from his family. He did get permission to stay. And from there, he kind of bounced around. He was a teenager at this point, trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. He was very good at calligraphy. And it's something that is present in his films. He writes the opening titles for, I think, almost all of his feature films. And that it kind of guided him through a number of jobs. And he was someone that, I mean, a way to say it, very cultured. He could speak English. He actually worked for an English language radio station for a while. And there was the promise that that was going to be his career. He even got a job. And they said, oh, you're going to move to the States. This could be your career. You'll have a pension. And he said, no, I actually want to follow somebody that he met on his previous work, a director, Li Hanxiang. I'm going to follow him into the Shaw Brothers because I want to kind of do something more artistic. And the guy that was hiring him for the radio job actually said, filmmakers don't have a pension. And he's like, I know, but you know what? I'm a kid. I wasn't thinking about it. I just went right into it saying, no, no, no. I want to do something that's a little bit more immediate. Now, throughout the 1950s, among his other jobs, he bounced around the Hong Kong film studios doing odd jobs, various work, until 1958 when he was hired by the Shaw Brothers as a set designer and bit part actor. Now, the Shaw Brothers were the dominant studio and would be until well into the 1970s. King Hu actually worked a lot as an actor for a long time. And being a man of short stature, he played a lot of like kind of hunchbacky characters and kind of in supporting roles. He was one of the many now famous Shaw Brothers filmmakers who, you know, gradually worked their way up the ranks. It was a factory studio. People got promotions. By 1963, he was the assistant director on a Chinese opera film called The Love Etern by a filmmaker named Li Hangzhang. Yeah, he's the guy that he basically followed through his entire filmmaking career, his mentor and good friend. And Li Hangzhang was the one who recommended him to help lead this year of action initiative. But in 1965 was when he directed his first solo film, which was a war movie, which I haven't seen, called Sons of the Good Earth. Now, technically, Sons of the Good Earth, I believe, is not his first film, that he made another film called The Story of Susan. Okay. But it was canceled with 70% of it done. Uh, and it only got done afterwards because of Sons of the Good Earth and other good stuff happening to him. And like, so King Hu, part of his mythology is that he left the Shaw brothers right after Come Drink With Me. And the reason for that is you just need to read how he and Run Run Shaw got along before that terribly. Like that first movie that he made, Story of Susan, like it was canceled. It was brought back. Sons of the Good Earth was supposed to be part of a duology of films. And he was already starting to prep the second one. But then when Sons of the Good Earth didn't do well, Run Run Shaw canceled the second one right away. Like King Hu had no luck with any of this stuff. and was kind of being pushed and pulled. And the reality is King Hu is a guy, and this would define his entire career, always going over budget, always very attentive to every little detail, which was not something that worked well within the Shaw Brothers system. Well, yeah. I mean, the Shaw Brothers system was one of the most rigid and bureaucratic. You know, it was like an old Hollywood studio, but more so. I yeah. mean, it was it was a it was a studio where most of the people who worked there were indentured servants, basically. They would sign these, like, draconian, you know, seven-year contracts. And they lived, like, inside the barracks of the Shaw Brothers. And, like, not knocking, you know, Chang Che or Lau Kar Lung or many of the filmmakers who did make distinctive work there. But it was one of those things where Run Run Shaw was sort of, you know, the 
Walt Disney like figure, the the author of this enterprise. Oh, and Run Run Shaw was vicious. I read a great article by George Shun Hun Wan from the University of Hawaii at Manoa called King Who and Run Run Shaw, the class of two cinema legends. And he goes beat by beat how Run Run Shaw was always trying to undercut the other major studio, Cathay, mm. and that they would like if they heard that Cathay was doing like an adaptation of a famous novel, Run Run Shaw would rush his version into cinemas first undermining the other studio who like oftentimes just canceled their version mm -hmm. and run run shaw dominated the other studio when the studio had died in a plane accident and then that basically made run run shaw the kind of all seer of hong kong cinema like i mean they had their hands in all sorts of stuff i mean shaw cinemas they had the monopoly and they would only play shaw movies and it continues to this day that there's shaw cinemas in hong kong and yeah the production monopoly i mean the stranglehold they had on major film production really wasn't broken and until a man named Bruce Lee came along yeah. and aligned himself with Golden Harvest. But King Hu, a visionary, a perfectionist, somebody prone to go over budget. You know, it's a classic great auteur archetype, isn't it? And so Come Drink With Me, the one that it was a huge hit, kind of redefined what wuxia films would be. When you hear that, you think you're going to have to approach it and go, oh boy, all right, let me just reset my expectations of what these movies used to be. And well, because then I can there, enjoy. Are, there are some, like if you watch One Armed Swordsman, yes. which was the one that came out the year after by Chang Che, and which is the one that is often credited as like the first modern kung fu film. Mm -hmm. Not really. And I think that the One Armed Swordsman is taking more inspiration from Japanese cinema. And because of that, it feels a little different than what you expect, even what Chang Chae cinema would evolve into. But Come Drink With Me in 1966 feels like it could have been made 10 years later. Yeah. The way it moves, the technical sophistication of it. I mean, you know, the later movies like Touch of Zen are a little fancier, but this one, just what he's doing with the camera, what he's doing with editing is already so much more sophisticated than, I don't know, what Lo Wei was doing. And King Hu, like, he would edit his films, his fingerprints were all over these. And you watch something like Come Drink With Me, and it does have, and this actually continues through King Who's filmography, certain kind of stylistic traits that you would perceive as errors, like a lot of jump cuts, like people will throw stuff and it'll like cut to the wall. It's like knife. And then you cut the camera, you put the other knife, you restart the camera and then you have the other knife. So it's like a little jump in the frame when it happens. Love it. <laughs> but it flows th so smoothly in Come Drink With Me from the beginning sequence. King Who was a guy that like at his best when he was doing martial arts cinema would have a situation and then have every possibility around the situation, usually one location, like a tavern, and see all of this stuff run through it. Like, Come Drink With Me opens, Chang Pei Pei, who would later go on to be a martial arts queen, and she would appear in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, she played Jade Fox in that movie, one of many conscious homages in that film to Come Drink With Me. Like, the opening sequence, you see her being attacked by people in that classic Chinese cinema way, where they're like, oh, let me help you, let me give you this, but I'm really trying to kill you. And then the hero just very casually does an amazing move and it just flows so well in this film king who capturing all this in a way that feels organic and is also wow worthy like you're like whoa whoa that was amazing what just happened there so the plot like all the films we're going to talk about or most of them unfolds during the ming dynasty when a governor's son has been kidnapped by a consortium of rebels a mercenary fighter golden swallow played by chang pei pei is hired to fight the rebels and flee free the son though chang pei pei is a woman she is disguised as a man every hong kong cinema fan runs into this when you first start watching these wuxia you're like wait did they call her he 
oh, do they think she's a man? And it's like, yep, that's a common trope in all of this stuff. You put your hair up, boom, and you fight strongly, all the baddies usually assume that you're a man. Well, his stories often have elements that are kind of stock for the genre. You know, the thing of knights errant Mm -hmm. versus corrupt emperors and governors. That's usual. And in fact, reading Jeff Yang's book, Once Upon a Time in China, which is a sort of like very breezy survey of Chinese film, gave me some insight into what was both old and new about this movie for example a lot of the inspiration for this movie and all of king who's early films come from chinese opera in this case a specific one called the drunken beggar yeah like peking opera yeah and a lot of the archetypes that this movie uses for example the woman warrior at the center as well as the drunken beggar who helps her come from that specific opera as well as operas like it but one big innovation that this movie had was the introduction of the martial arts director which was this was new it was a person person on crew who whose specific job was to choreograph action scenes and which is still common practice. Yeah. It's, it's a whole category at the Hong Kong Oscars, best action choreography. Mm-hmm. Jeff Yang, if I can just quote from him, he said, King Hu's swordsman existed midway between the earthbound bladesmen of early wuxia epics and the mystical energy blast wheeling Cantonese warriors of the then popular Buddha's Palm series. They were superhuman, but not superhuman, able to leap vast trampoline assisted distances, dodge blows at camera blurring speeds and run up walls and across the surface of water. So if you look at a movie like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I mean, I had never seen anything like that when I saw it in the year 2000. And that that kind of like it was both earthbound, but also had elements of being superhuman really kind of blew my mind at that time. I think that what King Hu is doing in something like Come Drink With Me is grounding this action of these superhuman characters in something that has its own internal logic and because of that allows a viewer to kind of be enveloped and be excited by the action because if anything can happen then it's not really that exciting Mm -hmm. but if it seems that there's limits upon what is being done then you can get into the suspense of how a set piece plays out and i think that king who one of the ways that he tried to focus in on that he doesn't use wire work which is what we usually associate with Wuxia. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe in one of the movies, there's some wire sets and stuff here or there. But like, I watched right up until his last film, and what he liked is trampolines. Mm-hmm. And that became his thing, is kind of trampoline-assisted combat, mm-hmm. where when people jump, they jump higher than normal, but they're also not flying through the air, which you would see later on in the films of someone like Yu Ping, choreographer of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Ching Su Tung, who would kind of basically direct something like Swordsman, which was supposed to be a King Hu film. But interestingly, even though King Hu made martial arts movies, he himself, unlike Chang Che or Yuan Wu Ping or Lao Kar Lung, was not really knowledgeable about, nor was he that interested in, different styles of martial arts. In fact, he was quoted as saying, Kung Fu, Shaolin Tales, I don't understand anything about that. And much of the brilliance of his films comes, I mean, the choreography is great, but it comes in the way he shoots and edits the action. So check out the compositions, check out the stunning blue skies and mountain vistas, or in A Touch of Zen, the way the light peers through the trees. And this is why I think a lot of critics and audiences and and cinephile audiences who aren't all that interested in the genre itself gravitate towards King Who. Sam Hung choreographed a number of King Who films, like I think he did The Valiant Ones and The Fate of Lee Khan, which was part of the Raymond Chow deal later on. He said that King Who just wasn't really interested in the action, that when it would happen. So like, if you watch any of his films, when people fight, it's often very kind of like wide arms, floaty, and he likes to shoot it all in kind of long tracking shots as it happens. But by doing 
doing that, there's also chaos there. Like he's not oh, shooting yeah. it in long tracking shots because he wants that clarity of action like someone like Larkar Long does. He wants more of the, wow, there's chaos happening in a kind of smooth frame which just accentuates it. I mean, I do find watching these movies a very different experience than watching a Lau Kar Lung movie. Absolutely. Because I'm as interested in the mise-en-scene as anything. Like a Lau Kar Lung movie and there's great filmmaking in those films. There's great use of the camera, a great mise-en-scene too. But really, primarily what it's about is like the physical feats of the people in front of the camera. Whereas in A Touch of Zen, I mean, the, a lot of the excitement just comes from like how gorgeous it looks. And King Hu, when you're talking about him in comparison to most martial arts filmmakers, he doesn't really use zooms. Mm-hmm. And I think that also separates him and also creates a few limits in the way that he can present action, which may make it feel a little bit older in the way that you kind of cut and there'll be jump cuts between action moments. Mm-hmm. And so you watch also Dragon Inn. So after Come Drink With Me, King Who breaks away from the Shaw Brothers. He's one of the first people to do it. And to be very like, rare. Yeah, yeah, like I'm getting out of my contract. I'm going to Taiwan to make films. Which is what you did if you broke with yeah, Shaw Brothers. Yeah, work in hong kong anymore that's right you were blacklisted and he went and he made a little film called dragon inn now dragon inn was a massive hit like a huge hit now the story goes that the studio that made it said oh well you went so over that we can't actually pay you what like a big success like this would entail but please visit our new studios that we've mysteriously built with money that we've attained somehow (laughs) and so like dragon inn after that he went off to another studio but i know that you watch dragon inn and i think that like if you want the purest king who i think dragon inn is the one you should watch because it's the evolution of come drink with me but it also doesn't have the kind of all right i want to extend this as far as it can go in A Touch of Zen, which would be the movie he would make after. Well, yeah, this and A Touch of Zen, I think, represent two different poles of his style. Touch of Zen is long and extravagant and painted on a vast canvas, whereas this one is concise and compact yeah. you know it's a fistful of dollars versus once upon a time in the west it's or the most compact story that you could get which is a bunch of martial arts heroes show up in one location everybody is doubting everybody else and kind of like slyly attacking them every other moment and i mean it's far from the only martial arts movie to have labyrinthine plotting mm. but i do think it's unique among martial arts movies in how much like, like I care as much about the story in this movie as I care about the action mm-hmm. and, and like the hidden motivations of these characters and the chess, the mental chess playing they do with each other. It's set again during the Ming Dynasty. King who loved the Ming Dynasty. He kept going back to it again and again and again. <laughs> A general has been defeated by his top eunuch who has seized power. These movies are always giving you very timely warnings about the dangers of eunuchs. Beware! (laughs) The children of that general, who were banished to the edge of China by the western border, they've been living there, but now the eunuch king wants to send his assassins to finish the job. But so the action converges at the Dragon Gate Inn, which is this sleepy, rather dingy little establishment near the border, where all of these characters, good and bad, are doing their little mind games to each other. And so you follow all these characters kind of weaving in and out unsure who knows what as like attack after attack happens what's fascinating about dragon in is that like true hark gets obsessed with this movie and he remakes it i think it's just called dragon gate in yeah and then he remakes it again in 3d i don't remember it's like flying dragon with jet Li, Mm -hmm. and he 
never just like seizes on this idea of like set it in one location. That's what makes the King Who original so powerful is that you're playing with all these different players in one very compressed space. Well, as Andrew Chan writes in his Criterion essay, I think he puts it very well. In Dragon Inn, Who keeps the narrative lean for the most part, allowing him to focus on nuances of mood and atmosphere, contrasts of interior and exterior, silence and sound, expansion and compression that nudge the film towards abstraction. The inn is the point at which these dueling elements converge, unquote. And so after Dragon Inn is a, a again, a massive hit, like to the point that Shaw Brothers actually stopped the release in Hong Kong due to some like weird contractual like limbo that they play. And so they could make their own version, release it, hope it's actually successful. It's not. And then the King Who version comes over. Huge, massive hit in Hong Kong as well. And so after that, King Who gets to make his playtime, basically. <laughs> yeah, they're like, whatever you want. And King Who's like, okay, let me build a location. I want to build a city. <laughs> yeah, but I also want it to just sit there for a year so the plants can grow around it. And the studio's <laughs> like, oh my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? Every now and then a movie like this gets made that just feels like a miracle. Yeah. You know, that this was allowed to happen. Well, I mean, some people would argue that this almost basically killed King Who's career, but also... Oh, but what a way to go. Give him international attention as well as we'll get into. So A Touch of Zen has a kind of fascinating history in that it takes years to make. The first version is three hours long. The distributor goes, oh my god, we can't release this. They cut it in half, release it as two parts. That completely tanks at the box office. They recut it into a two-hour version. That also fails at the box office. And what happens is that there is a French kind of critic programmer, Pierre Rissin, who comes to Hong Kong. He asks people, what's popular? What should I see? He ends up seeing The Valiant Ones, a King Who film that he made later on in the 70s. Loves it. Gets in contact with King Who. And I think they end up releasing the director's cut at Khan in 1975. Years after A Touch of Zen is made. A full four years. Yeah. yeah. And it is a massive hit. It wins like a technical grand prize yeah. there. And it's, it's shown, it's one of the first Chinese movies to get a limited art house release around the world. You know what? I say it was a massive hit at Khan, but Pierre Rissant says in an interview that I watched with him, listen, there was only like... 15% of the people that were there that loved it, but we were very vocal, so we made it a big deal. So when you talk about King Hu, you talk about it winning that award at Cannes. It's interesting, though. You look at Rotten Tomatoes, and on Rotten Tomatoes, like crazy weird people have like dug into the digitized archives of every magazine from the 70s yeah. and like you'll read alexander walker's review from the 70s and it's all it, the tone is always like listen i don't usually go for this ching chong kung fu stuff but but this movie is incredible so like it was recognized by western critics at the time and i think the reason for that is by the mid 70s we're in the wave of bruce lee we're in the wave of... 75 was the Kung Fu boom. Yeah. yeah. King Boxer has mm -hmm. been a huge Five Fingers of Death. So like the, the and cinemas... those movies are pretty basic looking. Are being flooded by these films that most people, if they don't have an affinity for this kind of stuff, just look at it and go, it's cheap, it's badly made. But then you get this like three hour... And I want to say monstrosity, but it's like a basic plot. Like it's not some like super complicated thing. Well, it's a basic plot that is told in a very like odd and unconventional way. Yeah. Again, saturating the Ming Dynasty, you would think that it would be about like the woman warrior at the center of the action, but it's actually about Gu, a bumbling, not particularly bright, 
painter who lives with his mom. And one day, a mysterious stranger comes to town, gets his portrait done by Goo, and Goo senses that something is off. And the stranger, it turns out, is an assassin who is here to take out this fugitive, this woman warrior, whose entire family was wiped out, again, by the corrupt eunuch emperor. And that fugitive is Yang, played by Xu Feng. And she's hiding away, plotting a way to overthrow the corrupt emperor. But it takes about an hour to find out who all of these people actually are. Mm. And unusual for a film like this is that the first action scene doesn't take place until 57 minutes in. And I swear to God, I did not miss it. Like, like for the first 57 you're minutes, good. you're good because it's atmosphere. You're just kind of like soaking in the visions that King who is presenting. You, you already love the central character in his way. And there are all these characters in the town who are like slowly emerging and you're finding out like what their hidden motivations are and how they're related to each other. And yeah, the visual style, the atmosphere is like unbelievable. And like the big famous bamboo fight scene that takes place in this movie, I clocked it. And I went, wait a minute, that's it? It's two minutes, it's like two, three minutes long. It's not long. Well, it's it not so, and it's not even so much about the fight. It's no. about the light in the trees. Yeah, you know? and that you just cut to the bamboo shaking in the trees as the people are running around there. And again, the plot is full of all these kind of stock elements, but it's the following this character, following like his rather tangled journey as he goes up and down, following his philosophical journey as he reach, reaches a sort of, or as we as the audience reach a sort of Buddhist transcendence by the end. And King Hu, in the near the end of his career, really got into Buddhist figures in his films and using them as allegories when interviewed about it he went nah i'm not i'm not a buddhist or anything i just think it's interesting and that's what i'm putting up on screen so like the end of this movie is like a weird kind of like kaleidoscope of like wait who's fighting who is there some supernatural thing going on as monks get involved and as you follow goo's journey it's like the the story goes a certain direction in the middle where so spoiler he has sex with yang Mm. and suddenly gains super confidence which also happens in real life by the way (laughs) yep me and will where we're the prime examples Uh, i think we started a podcast (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah then then he like it becomes very bloody in the midsection yeah he devises a strategy to take down a huge army fool them making them think that the castle that they're in is actually has an army of itself when it really doesn't and you think that that would be the climax that would be the climax in most movies but no like that's actually like a bit of a wrong turn yeah the protagonist realizes like oh wow doing this has killed so many people and Mm. the film kind of lingers in all of these dead bodies that they've won but at what price and so the rest of the movie is his philosophical journey Mm. after that and then there's another like extraordinary like fight scene set in the woods towards the end where our old friend Sammo Hung and and, Jackie uh, Chan and and a young Jackie Chan is in there too yeah and so like the film when it played to international audiences was a huge hit and you would think that this would kind of like let King Hu do whatever he wants. Not really. Now, let's take a step back from that because after Touch of Zen didn't do so well, King Hu turned around to his old friend Raymond Chow, who worked at the Shaw Brothers, would go on to start Golden Harvest, and Raymond Chow ended up funding King Hu, I think you could argue is for them projects, where King Hu's going like, listen, you want action? All right, I'll make action movies, okay? So Raining in the Mountain? No, Fate of Lee Khan and The Valiant Ones. I see, I see. Those were the two that, like, those are choreographed by Sammo Hung. They still have that King Hu kind of brilliant like four star five star movies but it is him going like this is what the audiences want this is what i'm gonna give to them 
They were not very big successes, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so after that, he's kind of adrift. And so the other movies that he's well known for, Raining in the Mountain and Legend of the Mountain, very confusingly have very similar titles. That's because he shot them back to back or some say simultaneously in South Korea. And I haven't had a chance to watch those movies. Yeah. Like, how do they hold, stack up? Well, they're not martial arts films. They're like Raining in the Mountain has a very kind of brief martial arts climax, but he's more interested in like the Raining in the Mountain takes place at a Buddhist monastery. Great plot. A bunch of people want to steal a scroll. And you're like, oh, yeah, I love it. Like, are they going to, like, trick each other? They're sneaking around. They do, but it's also in, like, very small pockets. Again, if people want an action scene in one of these movies, they're going to wait an hour until anything like that happens. But they're very beautiful. And as long as you go in not expecting something like Come Drink With Me, there's a lot to be enjoyed there. So those early movies influence every Chinese filmmaker. Yes. Every Chinese filmmaker. And then he doesn't work for te over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then in the early 90s, he comes back, sort of. No. He Sort yeah. of. Sort of. He's the credited director on a movie called Swordsman, which, by the way, has the distinction of being the first one I ever saw mm -hmm. because Mir like, uh, time for me to get into some King Who. Let's rent the Swordsman. <laughs> because uh, you know, my local blockbuster, they had every one of those Jet Li movies that Miramax put out under a new title. Now, then you probably didn't watch Swordsman. You probably watched Swordsman too. Oh yeah, Jet that's Li was right. In it? Okay, yeah, sorry. That was directed by Chin Su Tung. Oh, then what's Swordsman? <laughs> Swordsman Two is stars one of the Hoy brothers. Okay, and it's the same characters. They just get recast in the second one. Okay. And Swordsman was Choi Hark, who has always said, like, King is one of my favorite filmmakers. Dragon is my favorite movie. Like, look, at I keep remaking them. Wanted to throw King Hu a bone after King Hu had struggled for so long. And so he got King Hu, and he's like, all right, let's direct this movie. The story goes that, like, King Hu maybe directed a couple days, some say maybe a few weeks, but that when Choi Hark watched The Rushes, he said, oh, I thought this would be, like, funnier that's what tony rain said in the commentary i listened to okay and so king who gets kind of left aside now choi hark a, a hands-on producer yeah every film that's produced by choi hark you can basically say it's co-directed by him yeah. like directors have complained like why did he hire me it, like he just directed the film himself mm -hmm. and swordsman is also famous for Troy hark kind of directed it but if you look at the there's like a dozen direct like and hoy is co-director of Swordsman. people just came in for a yeah. day and shot something you can't really tell like it's just like a, a that kind of 90s fantasy wuxia films that ching su tung kind of made his bread and butter and after that king who did get to make one other film in 1993 and what's interesting about it is that he got a cavalcade of like hong kong stars to appear at sammo hong lan ching ying he's basically doing a chinese ghost story also directed by ching su tung and produced by choi hark so we got joey wong who stars in that movie to play another ghost character and i watched this movie just to see like an example of late style this is not one that's held in much high regard and watching it i understand why because it's basically king who doing what he's always done his entire career but now within the stylistic conceits or like the visual conceits of what supernatural Hong Kong movies look like now. And so like you're a watching, Chinese ghost story. Exactly. Thing, so you're yeah. watching this movie, but then it doesn't give you any of those things those other films do. Mm -hmm. So you're like, what the hell is this? Right. It creates a kind of like there's there's a feeling of emptiness in this stuff that if maybe King Hu had been making it 20 years before, it would feel fresh and new. But now he's working off of a template that like hundreds of people have already worked off of and he's not bringing anything fresh to it. 
So, you know, you can't go home again. Well, he had one more movie in the works when he died at the age of, of 64 in 1997. Died pretty young. Supposedly, he John Woo was going to produce yeah. like a big epic that was going to star Chayanne Fat and Kevin Klein. Yeah, it was supposed to be an American film. It was supposed to be about the Chinese railway workers and follow them. Even though that like the script went through supposedly like 100 revisions, that there was like a sequence that was like a touch of Zen where there was like a weird phantom in a house thing. So it's like... He just goes through cycles of, you know, the same material over and over and over again. I mean, I have my doubts about this unmade film, but I would have liked to have seen it. I mean, it would have been interesting. It's fun to go like, ah, yes, his unmade masterpiece. And it's like, yeah, I saw the movie he made in 93. Like, I don't think he probably had another one like that in him. But I got to tell you, the three movies that I watched this week, just re-immersing myself in him, pure pleasure. Mm -hmm. Like, my God. Someone on the Discord was asking, like, is King Who like an art house guy or a martial arts cinema guy? Because I feel the sense that he's more of a martial arts cinema guy. And the reality is he's probably more of an art house guy. Well, he was always in my head. If I did have like separate filing cabinets, Mm -hmm. he was always in art house. Yeah. And I think that that's why he's a good entry point for people who may be a little bit reticent about martial arts cinema. Like, show them one of his films. And maybe they can understand, oh, I get it. Like it's maybe elevated again, uh, that toxic word a little bit more and then use that as the entry point into like, and now let's see how martial arts can be displayed on screen in a more, you know, physical form. Let's see his Taiwanese countryman, Chu Yanping, (laughs) what he does. Well, hey, as Will pointed out, he's like, there's some Chu Yanping actors in these King Hoop. Yeah, Raining in the Mountain has the guy from Fantasy Mission Force, the hobo. Yeah, who sings the song at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Well, there you have it, King Hoop. You'll be as thrilled by the blue skies behind the action scenes as you will be by the action scenes. (laughs) Do we have any letters, Justin? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. I like that we're popular enough now that we have letters on every episode. That didn't always used to be the case. Well, I mean, it's a lot to ask to people to write letters and be like, especially when you're like in hundreds of episodes, maybe it lets people go, listen, the question I'm probably going to ask has been asked. Who cares? There are hundreds in at this point. Yeah. So they let, let their inhibitions loose. Yeah, exactly. They just send it. Yeah. So our first question is from Kenny and he asks, hey, Justin and will i'm gonna be headed into toronto for a day sadly just a day mid-month beyond vinegar syndrome which i'm excited to check out because vinegar syndrome has a new store in toronto is there anywhere else i should pay a visit i don't know the area well and i'm well aware you have the worst public transit in canada is that true it might be it's not good i I mean it i'll take it over new york yeah (laughs) my brother has recommendations but i want to broaden my options best kenny yeah i've been to new york which goes everywhere but i remember my mom coming to toronto she's like oh this toronto subway is so gross and i was like mom you're you have no idea. New York. <laughs> yeah, no, New York goes everywhere and you'll love it if like you want to like wade through like five feet of water, like whenever it rains. <laughs> the Toronto subway is very big, especially the new ones. Yeah. And yeah, they can be dirty, but listen, anything can be. Listen, I love my city. <laughs> I love my city. Okay, but but places to go. I mean, in terms of stores, I highly recommend if you want to take a subway ride out to the East End, go to what is it? Coxwell Station or something and then vi- pay a visit to Hollywood Canteen. Oh, yes. Which is the best film bookstore in the city and the only film bookstore and maybe the continent obvious uh, honestly like it's it's uh now i will say you won't find that many deals on books no but you will find them accessible to you there. You will find all sorts of books that you will have trouble finding anywhere <laughs> I else. I almost feel like the guy's like, I price them because this is my library. I don't want people buying books. <laughs> yeah, maybe. They also have posters and lobby so cards. So many posters. I'll tell you, I went there a couple of weeks ago and I got a very rare copy of Larry Fine's self-published oh. autobiography wow. 
Wow. Stroke of luck. Love it. And yeah. I would suggest if you go on Abe Books, you can find, they put their entire invent- inventory up there. So you can search and you can go in like ready to find stuff when you get there. If you want just used books or BMV Books in the Annex. Oh, yeah. Has a huge bookstore. Bay Street Video, of course. And in terms of movie theaters, I mean, yeah, the Review Cinema, mm-hmm. the Paradise, Tiff Lightbox, obviously. Yeah. What's a funny off the beaten path place we can take them? That we can take them? Only no, not, not, not us. Yeah. Not us. <laughs> no. Well, you know, why not check no. out... Re- no. I thought you were going to say, meet us at this location. No. Check out Red Heart Cineforum. Don't check out Red Heart Cineforum. Okay. No, don't check out Red Heart <laughs> I don't want him telling the police, this is the podcast host, tells me to go. Do yeah. not go there. Walk through downtown, look at any post, and see the war between two... What is the two other... odd old men. What does the other guy do? The guy that Dr. hates... Dr. Jamie, he's... He's... Sells... So he has a bicycle business. Yes. That's all I'll say about it. Okay. I, I, he, he has a business where he sells bicycles. Where he gets those bicycles, none of my business. But why is he in a fight with Reg Hart? I don't know exactly. Apparently, he lived with Reg Hart at one point. Okay, that's probably why. And they wage war with each other through their posters. And this has been going on for 15 years. And lately, they're real. Doctor Jamie has launched an assault that's like, oh my god, some of this stuff. So, yeah, Toronto has its characters. Yep. If you want comic books, go to The Beguiling. That's the comic book store to visit in Toronto. And if you're going, just go to the counter and say, hey, can I go in the basement? And they'll probably ask you to just put your bag down. Go to the basement. They have a huge treasure trove of back issues down there that you may not be accessible because you don't know it's there, but... Yeah, anyone can go down. Oh, so such a good store. The Beguiling and Hollywood Canteen. Those are the official <laughs> store recommendations. And Bay Street Video. I know that- Bay you, Street Video, yeah. You, you may be like, ah, I can go to Bay Street Video whenever I can. But like when people come to Toronto, they're like, what is this store? I don't, there's nothing like this anywhere else. Also, I hear that like your efforts have helped make it a little tourist destination for some people. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know what I love? Mark will tell me this all the time that like employees of Bay Street Video will go to other towns and they'll go visit. You know, video store and stuff like that. And when he says they're from Toronto, they're always like, oh, you know, Justin, I love the Bay Street Video podcast. I love it. Love that. That, you know, international. What about the important cinema club? You listen to, I mean, they must. If you listen to Bay Street, I feel like they're both connected together. Well, if they're in the video store business, they might only Mm. listen to Bay Street. Bay Street Video. Who knows? I was like, we should start charging academic fees for listening to the Bay Street Video podcast. Yes. If you have a video store. (laughs) Yes. So thank you very much for the letter. Hopefully we gave you stuff to go visit. Anytime I go to a town, I'm always asking like, where do I go? Like, like, and so I always want to go to the used bookstores. Yeah, used bookstores, BMV. Will didn't want to let you know which ones you should go to because he doesn't want you poaching the books that he could get himself. Listen, I got my copy of Stroke of Luck by Larry Fine. So <laughs> there's actually one. Is it called ABC Books on a- Young ABC Street? ABC Books on Young is pretty good. Yeah, they have a good like magazine section. Yeah, because they're a small store, but they get like deeper cuts because they feel like they buy less. So they mm-hmm. buy better stuff. Mm-hmm. So you could check that as well. And yep, hopefully you have a very good trip. Our next letter is from... Oh, and go to Young and Dundas and see a Chinese movie or yeah, a or Indian a Hindi movie. movie yeah. or Go to the Albion. I mean, he's only there for half a day. I forgot there's not yeah. that much time. Did we talk about the Albion that they got like a, a an upgrade? Yeah, I haven't been there to see it. But... Oh, that's why we haven't talked about it. Okay, but next time you, you get to go. Next time, let me know a week in advance and mm-hmm. I will I will go to the Albion because I love the Albion. 
All right, so our next letter is from Cody, and he goes, Hey guys, Emmanuel 5. Okay, let's go. In honor of the recent Patreon episode where Will discusses his deep dive into Emmanuel series, I revisited Emmanuel 5, Hardcore Insert Edition. That's the one I saw as well. And notable is that Emmanuel 5 was directed by, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Walerian, you know, he's a Polish director. He made Immoral Tales and the Beast. Mm. And he was an unusually highbrow director to make Emmanuel 5. I find the release history of this movie pretty interesting because outside of the original softcore release, there is the French hardcore cut for home video and more fascinatingly, a Roger Corman version. The New Horizon VHS release was recut, but also had some of the original cast come to the US to shoot additional footage with Steve Barnett. Corman wanted the New Horizon release to come off more like a boner comedies of the 80s, and I find his version fairly charming and goofy. Did you watch his version? No, I saw the French hardcore version. Yeah. I, I couldn't find the Corman one, but maybe I didn't look hard enough. That sounds really interesting, actually. Obviously, a lot of movies get recut or have footage inserted, but I've never really heard of a new producer doing something like rehiring the actors for a new version of a previously released film. Anyway, well, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yes. Who could forget Godzilla 1985? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'd love to hear you all thoughts, and if you knew of any other examples of re-edits like this, love the show, Cody. Oh well, I just I just gave my your my answer. answer, but you know there are some like to speak of erotic films. I mean, there were a lot of like hard like the more expensive hardcore movies of the seventies or eighties. They would sometimes make other versions for like cable TV that would be softcore, where they'd shoot like an additional twenty minutes to mm-hmm. just like make up for all the stuff they cut. Speaking of Roger Corman, all of those, I think it's film group movies that were around sixty minutes when they were sold to television, they were like, these need to be like minimum over 70. So they'd get Monty Hellman to come and shoot yeah. some like additional I, stuff. I think they got the cast back together for some of it and like shot them on the phone talking to someone. Oh, also there are those like Roger Corman would buy those Russian fantasy movies that had what, the- these dicks and vaginas that are aliens or <laughs> fighting each other. Not so much that as like a woman of the prehistoric planet or whatever. Oh, like- there is one like that. You haven't seen that one where it's like the puppets and they're like basically a giant vagina. Are you talking about Flesh Gordon? What's no, that? No, 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 no. It's a Roger Corman one. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the title is. One of the is it the one co- that Peter Bogdanovich yeah, it's the did? One that Peter Bogdanovich in, for? Yeah. Okay, yeah, and yeah. I think maybe Francis Ford Coppola worked on it as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they would do like reshoots for that kind of stuff too. Uh, no. oh, oh, wait, the granddaddy example of like taking a thing and then adding new footage to it. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the TV yes. show. But I, I think that the difference with the one that he mentioned is that they got the actors back to shoot new footage. And I think that happens pretty rarely. No, I mean, a, a weird example, and this isn't exactly what he's talking about, is like Woody Allen shooting September and then he's just reshooting firing the whole cast and yeah. getting a whole new cast and shooting the same movie again. Yeah. And then apparently like not improving on it. <laughs> no, I mean, we've all seen September. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was already broken, Mr. Woodman. I'll think about it. It'd be funny to do an episode of just those movies that are like recut and re-edited and like how drastic they are from their original vision Mm -hmm. and like what does that say about the movie is it able to survive or are they just kind of curiosities of like oh wow this exists i mean listening to the guy who kind of brought king who's a touch of zen to Khan, he talks about that he took the Valiant ones and he re-edited it for French audiences with King Who mm. to like kind of streamline the story. And I don't think that version exists anywhere. It's called The Pirates and the Warriors. Well, Dario Argento did something similar with Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, he cut out like 45 minutes of for it. For Italian audiences. And of course, Harvey Weinstein did that with a lot, a of, lot movies, of movies, including Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, where he sort of turned it into a movie for American audiences. Can I just say, it's so funny that out of all people that's like, oh, this movie's too 
long. It's Dario Argento. I know. Oh my God. Dario Argento's movies are all like 118 minutes and they're the most satanic lengths. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Well, thank you very much for that letter. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, we watched Mac and Me. Mac and Me is the classic E.T. ripoff where the alien eats McDonald's and drinks Coca-Cola. We didn't just watch Mac and Me. We watched it on 16 millimeter at a local Toronto place. That's right. Justin's bachelor party. We all got together and had a 16 millimeter movie night. We talk about Mac and Me, and we're also going to talk about some of the short films we watched, including, most importantly, the Three Stooges comedy Husbands Beware. Yes, which is a re-edit of public domain Three Stooges footage with newly shot, speaking of newly shot footage, that's right. the Three Stooges. Oh, oh, this is the perfect example. To that last letter writer, Husbands Beware, they took Brideless Groom, they shot six new minutes of footage, they brought the whole gang back. Well, seeing that my bachelor party happened, I'm getting married in a week, I think that next week, continuing International Cinema Month, the perfect filmmaker that's easy breezy is Lars von Trier. That's right, Lars von Trier. You know him, you love him. Let's talk about Breaking the Waves, mm -hmm. let's talk about Dogville. And maybe something else, too. You know, it's wedding time. Why not Melancholia? That's about a wedding. That's a, that's a good movie, yeah. And, yeah. and maybe something we can expect next Saturday. Yeah. The complete obliteration of planet Earth. Looking forward to it. So until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of our new patrons, who include David Hamilton Smith, Zach Hurley, Jason Hoff, Mike David, Valerie, Jacob Skidmore, Jackson Knoll, Benjamin Sakashio, Daniel Demois, Matthew Treeforest, Zachary P. Way, Jerry Lolly, Calvin Vaughn, Alan Butt, Lunchbox, Tyler Plunkett, and Kathleen. Thank you very much for all becoming patrons. We could not keep doing it without you. Well, I went to see The Killer this weekend. Wait, wait, wait. You went to go see The Killer. It's coming to Netflix, Will. Why would you go see something in theaters? Great question. I went to see it because I love the theatrical experience and because David Fincher, I mean, he's not really one of my guys, to be honest, mm. but he's made great films and he's obviously somebody who cares what his movies look like. So I thought I'll pay a real filmmaker real respect and see their work in a theatrical setting without the compression of Netflix. Now, I also went to go see it in theaters because I'm a soldier of cinema. And something that I was thinking about watching this movie, I've been listening to the blank check kind of David Fincher. They've been going through every movie. Can any, any hot takes, any revisionist appraisals? No, they love David Fincher. So What about Benjamin Button? They, like they liked it, but you could tell they were pretty soft on it. Mm. That's a movie I saw in theaters and just like whoosh, evaporated from my mind. Yep. <laughs> and do you know that... There's a really funny story about the Criterion release of Benjamin Button. Not a real Criterion release. They bought the rights for the Criterion logo to put it on the Blu-ray. Really? Do they have the menu format? Yeah, it looks like it. It looks like a Criterion Blu-ray. Has the spine number? I don't think it has a spine number because it's not an official Criterion release. Wow. Yeah. And that's a big like kerfuffle in, I guess, the Criterion Reddit or whatever. Don't go there, people. Okay. But so David Fincher, he kind of... I in his later period movies defined a visual language that has become the kind of like kind of gray muted palette of movies some piss yellows and yeah some, you know. but even like like later zodiac onward kind of like almost like colorless films and 
You could lay it at David Fincher's feet that people are trying to imitate him and doing it very badly, and it looks bad. But then when you watch something like The Killer in theaters, you're like, yeah, but that's not what his style is. Like, The Killer's filled with darkness and, like, patches, and, like, it's so perfectly controlled yeah. instead of that kind of gray mush. Think how Oppenheimer felt. <laughs> what, well, what do you mean, the movie or? The, the, the man, oh. you know? No, no, no. So uh, David Fincher is the Oppenheimer He's watching the world be burned, you yeah. know? No, no, no. I, I feel like David Fincher probably doesn't watch that many movies. Well, I don't know. No, because this movie, I, I definitely felt like echoes of other movies. Mm. Well, have you seen Boarding Gate by Olivier Assayas? Yeah, that was a million years ago. Well, uh, sure. But I mean, I definitely felt like echoes the hit of that. Boarding Gate that everybody was talking about with Asia Argento? I mean, it has a very similar sort of structure, but also mm. like mise-en-scene of mm. that film. As well as, I mean, The Limits of Control. Yeah. I, I do the think Ginger the, movie. the casting of Tilda Swinton in the movie, you know, would indicate that he's familiar with that film. It has kind of the same structure, including to where it leads except that like the killer is an action movie mm. like it's it's well fun. if i sold someone the killer as an action movie i think they would maybe come away from it a little bit disappointed because technically it only has one action scene well but it's a propulsive thriller it is absolutely I, yeah i mean first of all i just i love this movie i, I thought think it the was killer's really great. fun yeah and i really puts the horse before the cart you know it's really entertaining but you know the fact maybe you have something to say maybe, as well. i mean he's operating out of an empty we work office at the start of the movie i mean it's almost as if the movie is saying something about capitalism hey, i may spoil the killer which I, I mean most people will probably stop listening because by the time this comes out the movie hasn't come out yet but like i i'm always thinking that like he kills just an innocent cab driver but then leaves the billionaire <laughs> to live that's interesting isn't it yeah it is because the billionaire if he kills him the people around him can hurt him more than him yeah. killing a life that no one nothing no one can, cares no yeah. one yet can do anything to him <laughs> Yeah, and I, Michael Fassbender. He's a guy that like he doesn't really act anymore that much. Well, he was in that one, Mister Snowman, or whatever that was. Oh, called. Oh, that was that. a million years ago. Yeah, he's, I gave you all the clues. He's got to be in stuff that we just haven't. He's in seen. that Taika Waititi movie. That's bad. yeah. There you go. And has it? That one's been sitting on a shelf forever. I think he's really funny in this movie. No, he's really good. But but that point that you make, it's right. It's like he introduces himself at the start of the movie. It's like I I wave no flag. I'm with no. I have no politics. I don't care about anything. But then as the Tilda Swinton character points out later in the movie like you do care like yeah well the he, fact that you're here at this table means you care he's continually saying it in voiceover things that are contradicting what he's actually doing where yeah. he's like no empathy keep control always get planned i mean it's also a pretty kind of like thinly veiled comedy about david fincher himself as an artist yeah i've, I've heard this yes. explain explain that the fact that like the michael fassbender is all about like control you don't improvise you just you, you plan things out and then realizing, well, that's not how the world Whoops. works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one little mistake, someone falls and throws everything in turmoil. And then your emotion, something happening to somebody close to you, send you down a path that you could never, ever imagine yourself going down. If someone just said, oh, you're going to do this while we're spoiling the movie. I thought it was interesting that in the last scene or the second last scene where he's with the billionaire, it's like. He finally gets the billionaire. He's worked his way all the way up. He's there's this whole chain of bureaucracy between him and the person who like orders the hat. And then the billionaire basically says, oh, I don't know anything. I mean, they just told me they they take care of that. That's it's the whole like, thing is that like 
everyone in this movie is doing something assuming that the person above them is taking responsibility. And then the person above says, it's like, oh, it's, all, really it's all the people below me yeah, who take exactly. responsibility. It's almost like that's how the world works. Yeah. And that everybody considers themselves innocent and it's the people below or above who are making those decisions. And there's a whole structure in place to keep that. Yeah. You know, he he's at the bottom saying, I don't know. It's like, I'm just doing the job. Yeah, told I, I don't think about it. Like everybody uh, below me are just ants and I just execute whatever they want done. But I do it very efficiently. And that's where I take joy in my work. Or does he take joy in his work? I think I think he well, well he's insulated himself to a lot of feelings. What well, he he take, he takes satisfaction in a job well done. Yes, that like he's like oh hundred percent except for that one guy who you know had a heart attack. I don't count that guy, but you know it's close. Mm-hmm. And that like he knows that if he does this, this is like doing it efficiently, being cool almost is what kind of like keeps him going. And it's really interesting how the movie goes of like him figuring out these plans. And I love that David Fincher just revels in the mundaneness of all this stuff of how many plane rides this guy takes. Oh yeah. And you see all of them too. Well, the whole movie takes place in these just completely like transactional, Mm -hmm. like flavorless, like, like transient spaces, just like, Bad hotel rooms, airplanes, storage units. And I feel like David Fincher, that's how he may just view his own life of like, this is what I yeah. do. Like, I'm always filming. I'm always somewhere else. Flying, you know. And like the Tilda Swin character, like she almost gets her comeuppance for enjoying her life. Like the, the killer even mentions, oh, she has like a normal suburban life, basically, even though she does what I do. She goes to a restaurant and she enjoys her meal, which you never see the killer do. Mm-hmm. That he's always living again in motion and he can't enjoy these things. And so, yeah, it's... It, and she's more comfortable. Like, she's sort of, like, yeah. like she's gazed on the horror of what she does and is more conscious of it. She hasn't compartmentalized it in the way that he has. But then... But that's her undoing, in, in though. An, in another way, she kind of has compartmentalized yes. it because she's like, okay, I acknowledge it. And that's that's how I get through the day. And I gotta say, I mentioned there's only one action scene in this movie. Amazing action oh, scene. a really good one. And watching this film, I'm like, oh, see, Fincher, as opposed to everybody else making films in his style, he allows himself that it's just black shapes fighting on screen yes that it's not gray that he allows pockets of crushed darkness which if you watch any coloring video people are like never show complete black it always has to have a little bit of gray it's like no that's not what like visuals are supposed to be you're not supposed to see everything it looks great love it by the way i watched uh, zodiac again uh, last week i hadn't seen it in years and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how like insane i could be when that movie came out and i saw it and i was 18 years old i thought Second half of the movie is too long. <laughs> you didn't get it. I thought the whole scene in, in Charles Fleischer's basement. Yeah. I thought. What's the point of this? Yeah. And she goes to show you, you know, I'm capable of being wrong too. Mm, well, will we go back and will we have been wrong about a little man called Mank? Maybe. Maybe. God. Well, we did watch that movie. I think the pandemic just started. We're yeah. sitting at home watching Mank. Yeah. Are there Mank like apologists well it got like 10 oscar nominations i know but i never felt anyone was like very passionate I feel like about even at movie. the time people were kind of joking about mank like, <laughs> yeah mank 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 as a trailer would do listen we did a patreon episode i think we were pretty vitriolic against it at the time i think i might have been too vitriolic yeah. honestly like i mean i don't think it's very good <laughs> no i i did look over my review and it made me chuckle where i think that someone in the movie's like mank you may be an asshole and a jerk but you, you there's one thing you're not it's boring and i'm like oh. i beg to differ <laughs> watching this movie <laughs> 